Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to Inside Sources. Great to be with you today. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Got a lot of ground to cover in the next 60 minutes, uh, but always great to be with you. As always, uh, you can weigh in with uh, your thoughts, your ideas on the Utah Community Credit Union text line, 57500. Again, 57500. Always interested in uh, what's happening in your world, what you're thinking about the news of the day. As we try to connect the dots and make the news make sense here on Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. As I said, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, we're moving into week two of the impeachment proceedings in Washington, D.C. We'll talk about that, break down what that means, what we learned in week one, and what we expect to see uh, starting uh, this week on uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. There will be hearings. And we'll break down what we should be watching for and, and looking at in that space. We'll also look at some new polling on the presidential front and uh, break that down. Uh, very interesting. Uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg has really surged, particularly in Iowa, which is, of course, the uh, one of the early voting states there. So we'll break down what that means, what it means for all of the different candidates there. And then we'll look a little closer to home. We'll look at the governor's race uh, with John Huntsman Jr., former ambassador to Russia, jumping in the race uh, late last week. So we'll break down what that means for each of the candidates in the race and a few of those that uh, have yet to declare or decide. Uh, so we'll break that down as well. And then we'll wrap up uh, our session today here on Inside Sources with a look at the power of story, how that plays into to what's happening in our world and uh, how we can use that in a positive way in our families and in our communities. So again, as always, it, it is great to be with you. Uh, I think the nation is already a little exhausted with the impeachment proceedings, but they're just beginning. <laughs> That's the sad news of the day, I think, is that we have a long, long way to go. But it's also important to uh, to keep in mind that uh, it is not the only thing coming out of Washington. We have a really critical deadline coming up on November 21st at midnight. The government will run out of money. And short of an act of Congress and a signature from the president, uh, the government will shut down uh, at the end of uh, that day on the 21st. And so we'll break down how, how are they going to get through that. Uh, again, I think it will be classic Washington, a lot of fake fights and false choices there. And so we'll break down what that means to the country and how that actually drives us all towards the uh, middle of December Week of the 16th of December, I think uh, members have already been told they need to plan on being in Washington. It wasn't scheduled to, to be that way, but I think both sides of the aisle have already told members, yeah, just plan on staying in Washington because I think that will be when the impeachment vote will take place. I think it will be that week of the 16th on articles of impeachment in the House. 
and then there'll be another funding issue to to deal with as well. So let's break down a couple of things from uh, from week one as you think it through. Again, the, the nation seems a little exhausted already uh, in this, even though we are just a few days into these uh, impeachment inquiry hearings, these public hearings. And the the first thing I would note is I, I don't think we know anything new or anything that was really different uh, in terms of what we knew going into these uh, public hearings. And and we should recognize that because we told you that. <laughs> we, we told you that the information has already been vetted through in the deposition process. So most of this is a public opinion effort from both the Democrats and the Republicans. This is a, a two-sided affair there to try to sway public opinion because ultimately – Politicians are, are not leading on this. They're, they're checking the polls. They're looking at the sentiment of the American people. Is this a good thing for us politically? Is it a bad thing for us politically? Uh, and so that's going to be kind of the, the interesting thing. Uh, as I predicted last week, uh, the, the word of the week came from Nancy Pelosi, and the word is bribery. Uh, and that's really going to seems to be where the Democrats are putting a lot of their eggs is into the bribery basket uh, to say that this is uh, what this impeachment proceeding is really about is bribery. And so that's where they're going to continue. You'll hear a lot more about that, I think, in the days ahead as we get into additional testimony coming up Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of this week. Now, I think one of the the challenges from both sides, and let's just talk about this from a strategy standpoint. So, again, I don't care if you love the president. I don't care if you hate the president. I don't care if you think he's guilty, if you think he's innocent. Uh, let's just talk through this from a strategy standpoint because I think that will help you as you digest the news. As you take information in, you you have to kind of frame your paradigm a little bit different. Otherwise, you're just kind of caught in the whims of, of whatever uh, the prevailing trends are. And that rarely leads us to good information. There's a lot of instant uh, certainty going on as different things uh, are said in these public hearings. And we just need to slow down, always slow down, suspend the judgment. No instant certainty. We're just going to wait. We're going to take things in. That's how this is supposed to be done. This is supposed to be a thoughtful, deliberative process. And so we do have to back up just a little bit there. Um, But then look at the strategy. So clearly this strategy that the Trump administration is currently taking is the Bill Clinton model, which is that you are going to really try to attack the attackers. So go after those that are coming at you, try to discredit, undermine their credibility and turn it in. Remember Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, uh, that's when they really started using the term, the vast right wing conspiracy. That's where that all started. And so that's, again, a lot of what the Trump administration is trying to do now is is kind of create uncertainty uh, that this is really just a political witch hunt. That's going to be the Republicans' uh, famous line for the week is uh, that the Democrats are just doing this purely for political gain. And I don't think either of those sides are actually accurate when it comes right down to it. Uh, we do need to get to the truth, uh, and that's the hard thing. And I, I think here's the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is that we are no longer dealing with shared facts. Uh, that's a problem in the country because so many people are functioning in a bubble. People are isolated. People are only in their own echo chambers, and, and that's the problem. Uh, if you missed our, our uh, 
uh, program on Thursday last week, uh, we had my interview with presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. We're going to replay that later this week, so make sure you stay with us here on KSL News Radio. Uh, it was it was great, great insight, in, just from a historic perspective. And she actually shared that during the Lincoln-Douglas debates, there was the same worry about people only consuming the news they agreed with. And there was one description that said if you, you know, if you read the papers that were in support of Abraham Lincoln, that Lincoln won the Lincoln-Douglas debates and was, you know, carried off on the shoulders of his supporters, you know, he was this great hero. If if you read the other newspapers that were on the Douglas side of the debate, they said that, you know, Lincoln was carried out, you know, drug out after being completely whipped uh, and outsmarted uh, by Douglas. And so even back then, uh, there were challenges and worries in terms of what we consume, where we consume it. And it really goes to something that Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska wrote about in his book, which is called Them, uh, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal, uh, is that the more we create an us and them mentality, the less likely we are to get to the truth. And I think one of the real challenges we face in the nation is that we are about to give democracy a real test that is a different test. And the, the difference is that we have never really tested the strength of democracy when we have so little institutional trust in the country because we've continued to deplete it over the years, left and right, equally so. And without that trust, can democracy really stand up? Can the republic really stand up uh, in an absence of basic trust? We're going to continue this conversation. Don't go anywhere. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Stay with us on Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Inside Sources. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Great to be with you today. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. And I want to continue our conversation. We've been talking a little bit about what to expect this week as it relates to the impeachment proceedings and a few things that I, I think we've all got to really step back and think through just a, a little bit as we go into week number two of impeachment. We have a host of witnesses due up on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of this week, uh, including some uh, folks like Jennifer William from the State Department, who is uh, currently assigned to the vice president's detail. The uh, vice president uh, and his office seem to be distancing themselves a little bit from Jennifer Williams. Uh, president Trump has tweeted uh, at and about her uh, over the weekend, and it will be interesting to see uh, she will be the uh, beginning witness on Tuesday, so we'll continue to, to watch that. We'll also have Fiona Hills, uh, who was uh, the top Russia advisor. Uh, she will appear on Thursday this week, so that will also be interesting, as well as some others from the uh, State Department and other agencies uh, that will be throughout the day on Tuesday and Wednesday. And we'll go wall-to-wall here on KSL News Radio, uh, talking about what happens and the interesting things that do emerge. Again, we're not going to see a lot of new information. This is more about shaping and framing public opinion, and that's really where it goes. Uh, actually, if you if you look back at the last two, 
proceedings in terms of impeachment. So if you look at Richard Nixon, if you look at Bill Clinton, uh, we'll leave Andrew Jackson out of it because it was just too long ago, and I don't think we, we know as much about that. Uh, but looking at those two, here's a, here's a really interesting thing to think about. So in if you took a, a bet, if you had to bet the ranch, so to speak, uh, on the outcome of both of those uh, proceedings, I am pretty convinced that most people thought at the beginning, at the beginning of the Watergate uh, trials, that Nixon was probably going to be okay in the end. And I think Nixon thought he was going to be okay in the end because he stonewalled and he dragged his feet. And, and I think he felt that ultimately people would say, yeah, uh, not great, but okay. And I think the exact opposite was true at the beginning of the Bill Clinton trial. And I think most people felt as the House began their impeachment proceedings there and their inquiries and, and open uh, committee hearings that uh, Bill Clinton was going to be put out of office. And the exact opposite happened in both cases. So, again, that's why we have to really take things in. I think one of the greatest miscalculations uh, was uh, by the then uh, Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, who felt the American public was with him, had galvanized, solidified, and locked in that they were uh, on the side of, of removing Bill Clinton from office. And it just it didn't happen. And it didn't happen for a couple of reasons. One, I don't think the Republicans ever really made the case. Two, I think the Trump administration did a brilliant job of doing two things. One, yes, they did undermine the credibility uh, of those running the proceedings. So, again, attack the attackers. That's uh, sort of it. Again, we, we talked about in the last segment about this uh, idea of the vast right-wing conspiracy that the Clintons really pushed uh, during those proceedings. But then there was something else I think that the, the Clinton administration did exceptionally, exceptionally well that President Trump hasn't seemed to, to latch on to yet, and that is this idea of the northbound train, that we're moving ahead, that there's business to be done. We're here to do the will of the American people, to solve their problems, to make their lives better, to improve the economy, create more jobs and opportunity and upward mobility. And Bill Clinton and his team did a fantastic job of saying, okay, you know, those things might be bad. In fact, I, I remember Nancy Pelosi saying, well, you know, what President Clinton did was embarrassing but not impeachable. And let's get on to the economy and jobs and moving forward an agenda, a specific agenda for the American people. And I don't think uh, President Trump has done that to this point of the game. And I think that's hurting uh, the Trump administration in terms of public perception and, uh, and public opinion. And on the flip side of that, let's look at what the, what the Democrats face. Uh, they obviously face a challenge that if Adam Schiff, uh, who is the head of that committee, uh, and Nancy Pelosi, if they become the face of the Democratic Party rolling into 2020, if it is the party of impeachment, if it is the party that is so obsessed with taking out President Trump that their own nominee for president is not the face of the party, that's a problem. Uh, also, you have a lot of these members who have kind of flown under the radar, particularly uh, those who are in swing districts, of how that how is that going to play back home? Because that's going to start to impact things as you get into 2020 and, and the 2020 train gets rolling along. And uh, so that's going to be something else that I think will be very important uh, for us to watch and, and look at where that really goes uh, it's also one one other just kind of interesting thing, I think, in terms of where the American people are, is that uh, a lot of people have 
sort of bought into this idea of of a transactional president. Uh, so just to compare and contrast. So I think Bill Clinton, again, going back to his impeachment trial, people said, ah, I don't like him as a person. I don't think he, you know, this was wrong. This was wrong. This was wrong. But his policies are working for me and for my family and our pocketbooks a little bit better. And the economy's growing and opportunity seems to be strong. And so people got on that northbound train and, and uh, away they went. Uh, I think if you look at uh, both President George W. Bush and President Barack Obama, both of them uh, took a lot of criticism for some of their policies. However, they were both always respected for their character. You know, whether you liked them or not, I was like, well, I, I, I think Barack Obama's a good dad. I think George W. Bush is a good dad. I think it, he's a person of character. I think he's sincere. I think he's earnest. Uh, and those kinds of things. So it's much more of a relationship kind of thing with Presidents Bush and Obama. Uh, President Trump and President Clinton are very similar in the fact that they were very transactional. Well, let's let's do a deal. Let's get this done. Let's move this forward. And it seems to me that the American people are starting to buy into that kind of relationship with their president. And the question then becomes, is that a good thing or a bad thing for the country? Uh, I, I'm I'm with George Washington. I, I think that our private uh, morality has to to match our public perceptions and character and the way we frame things, and, and so that's going to be an interesting uh, a test as we continue to roll through this. And, and where do the American people really go with that? Uh, and again, you know, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, uh, you know, really strong support for the character trait issues, less so on the policy front. And then Trump and Clinton kind of flipped the script. Uh, really focusing on their actions in office. Uh, so with President Trump, it's about judges, it's about tax reform, it's about criminal justice reform, uh, and uh, people on the bench in terms of the, the judiciary. So, you know, history is an interesting thing. We're going to continue to to monitor and uh, watch all of the hearings as these things go go along this week. And I would just remind everyone that you got to suspend judgment a little bit this week. I encourage you to get some information from various sources. Don't just go to your same social media feed and and just consume the headlines of whatever gets served up. Uh, Part of this is a we the people problem. We have to do better. We have to do better at getting to the truth and being committed to find the truth in so many of these things. Because if we don't, then then, uh, we get what we deserve in the end when it comes to democracy and this Republican form of government that we have. And so we'll continue to watch and monitor that. Uh, A lot of politics in play here, uh, not a lot that's moving the nation forward. And so that will be the test. And the the, the last thing I'll say on this before we go to break is that I I also want to remind everyone of what this means to us in our personal lives. And to me, it, it, we can be pessimistic about the politics and even some of the politicians within our, our government system. But we should, we should not be pessimistic about the future of the country. And the reason for that is because of the people. And it's because of places like Utah that have a great free market economy, strong institutions of civil society. We, we help neighbors. Uh, we have uh, great uh, faith-based groups and business groups and volunteer organizations and nonprofits and businesses that give back to the community. 
And all of those things make me incredibly optimistic. And as I travel around the world, uh, I'm always grateful I come from a place called Utah because I can tell people, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, there's some hard things. Uh, but the best is yet become, yet to come. And the reason the best is yet to come is because of the people and because of community and neighborhoods and families because that's what really drives freedom and really drives the nation in the end. So just remember that. When all the other negativity is going on this week, uh, just take an exhale, go for a walk, help a neighbor in need, make a difference for somebody, and uh, and we're all going to be just fine. All right, we are going to take an exhale moment right now. We'll take a, a quick break. When we come back, we'll start breaking down the Utah governor's race, give you some insight there. So don't go anywhere. This is Boyd Matheson. I'm the opinion editor at the Deseret News. Great to be with you on Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to Inside Sources. Wonderful to be with you today. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News, and we're going to continue on our conversation. If you ever miss a segment of the show, you can always pick that up on the KSL News Radio app. You can download that and follow along on the podcast and make sure you don't miss a single thing. Uh, just as a reminder, if you did miss last week when we talked with uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, presidential historian, Pulitzer Prize winner. She had some fascinating insight that is so applicable to what's happening in our country and around the world, and I uh, encourage you to go listen to that. We will replay that interview with Doris Kearns Goodwin coming up later on this week, so stay tuned to KSL News Radio for that as well. All right, it's time to get into polling. It's polling time, and we've had some interesting polls come out uh, over the last few days that shape both the national presidential race as it relates to the Democrats, and then also uh, we've got a host of things to talk about in terms of the Utah governor's race, what that means, what comes next. And so let's start to to break that down, make that make sense for you. And one of the interesting uh, things that came out over the weekend, CNN uh, reporting on their poll, uh, and they were focused particularly on Iowa. Uh, really interesting developments in Iowa. The the big shocker, the big surprise, was the surge of Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Uh, he is now in the lead in Iowa. And this is significant for a number of reasons. Uh, we've had a lot of national polls going on, and people say, oh, you know, it's Joe Biden, it's Joe Biden, it's Joe Biden, and maybe Elizabeth Warren and uh, Bernie's hanging in there. And it's close. But the thing you have to remember when it comes to presidential politics, especially in the primaries, is this is a state by state battle. This is about delegates. This is about racking up uh, wins along the way. And it's New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, Nevada, some of those early states that are really going to determine how this thing shakes out. So the the latest CNN poll, uh, this was uh, the CNN uh, Des Moines Register uh, Mediacom poll. So this was November 8th to the 13th. So this is the latest polling we have out of Iowa. And here's what it says. Uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg is at 25%. Elizabeth Warren at 16%. Joe Biden, 15%. Bernie Sanders, 15%. Amy Klobuchar, 6%. And then you got a handful of folks uh, just down the line at 3%. Corey Booker, Kamala Harris, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, and a, and a few others. Uh, and so here's the interesting thing. Uh, So since September, the last time that CNN and the Des Moines Register did this poll, and this is likely caucus goers. These are likely caucus voters uh, coming up. And uh, Pete Buttigieg is up 16 points since September. And that represents a real grassroots effort and heavy investment. Uh, Pete Buttigieg has been able to raise a lot of money And he is showing this is about boots on the ground, organization, and getting people connected to a story. 
Uh, we'll talk about Story in our final segment, uh, so stay tuned for that uh, and how he's deploying this uh, in a really powerful way. People are, are getting on board with Mayor Pete, and uh, 16 points is a big number. Elizabeth Warren dropped six points uh, from the September poll to now, and Joe Biden dropped five points. Yeah, and so, uh, again, it's, it's always about momentum. Um, Big Mo is either your friend or your enemy when it comes to politics, especially presidential politics. And obviously, uh, Joe Biden had a lot of early support. Uh, he was well-known, great name ID, great organizational structure and all of those things. But Mayor Pete is showing it's boots on the ground, it's organization. As I always say, it's strategy, structure, and then core disciplines that can be executed every single day. That's the test in these things. And uh, we'll talk about how that relates to, to Utah politics here in just a second. But Mayor Pete is, is really showing... Uh, that he has some some staying power there because of how he has organized. Uh, one of the interesting things, if you look below the numbers, the top line numbers are always interesting. But what's really fascinating to me is uh, kind of the uh, some people are calling it the Goldilocks principle. Uh, and that is the who, who's in the just right, not too hot, not too cold, not too liberal, not too conservative, uh, not too moderate. Uh, who's who's in the just right category? And this is where Pete Buttigieg does his best. Uh, 63% of caucus goers think that his views on policy are just about right. And that's the highest of the uh, top four candidates there. Uh, only 7% of those folks saw Mayor Pete as too liberal. 13 said he's too conservative. Uh, Biden is second in the just right category, the Goldilocks principle. Uh, about 55% think that uh, that's where he is. Uh, and then you you move on through, and obviously this is where Elizabeth Warren and uh, Bernie Sanders struggle because they have much higher numbers of people who say they're too extreme, they're too liberal. Uh, and so they're going to struggle with that, particularly in a place like uh, like Iowa. So uh, that's just a quick update on what's happening out there uh, on the national presidential front. Uh, again, Iowa is very important. A lot of folks can uh, parlay Iowa into more campaign cash. And Big Mo, it's all about momentum. Uh, and I think the uh, the interesting thing to me with Mayor, uh, Mayor Pete is that, again, he's, he's put the structure together. Uh, and that's an important thing for a president, that you can demonstrate, hey, I can lead an organization. I can get the right people around me that I'm confident in and comfortable with and trust, and then I can turn them loose to get stuff done. You often see presidential campaigns that either get so mired with the person at the top or become so divided in terms of everyone having their own agenda and no one really focusing on the real agenda, which is winning, uh, that you, you end up. And, and we've had some really interesting conversations about that. Even uh, last week we, we had uh, some folks from uh, Franklin Covey join us online talking about uh, good management, good leadership, and good bosses and that ability to, to have trust. And, and remember that most people don't quit companies or organizations they they quit leadership because they get so exhausted or tied down and you see that so often on on political campaigns so mayor pete's got some good juice there flowing uh flowing in and uh, we'll continue to monitor that on the utah front let's let's apply that to some utah politics i think one of the things as it relates to the governor's race obviously former ambassador to russia john huntsman jr threw his hat in the ring late last week so that changes the dynamics in the utah governor's race uh, currently, we have John Huntsman Jr., Spencer Cox, current lieutenant governor, 
is in the race. Um, Mr. Birmingham, of course, is, is uh, a regular and uh, moving forward there in, as kind of the business guy in the business lane. Uh, and then you also have Amy Winder Newton uh, also in there. And she really represents that, hey, I'm, I'm working at the county level. I'm working close to the people. I know what the people need. Uh, and uh, that's going to be her lane. We're uh, still waiting for decisions uh, from Speaker Hughes. Uh, if he will get in the race, my guess is that's a yes. Uh, Congressman Rob Bishop, who is retiring from the United States Congress at the end of 2020. Uh, I'm uh, not sure where he is leaning at the moment, um, but he would be a fascinating dynamic to put into that race, uh, given his history, both on Utah's Capitol Hill and our nation's Capitol uh, would be really interesting and I think good for the state in terms of a conversation as we go into those debates and, and into that battle. Uh, what I really think is going to be, everything's going to boil down to as it relates to the Utah race is it's going to be a an element of vision. Who's who's willing to lead out on a vision that is more than just the usual talking points? And let's compare this back to Mayor Pete. We were just talking about Mayor Pete Buttigieg and his incredible surge in Iowa. And I think the challenge in Utah is going to be the the Republican primary is the last Tuesday in June. So we're talking about a very late June primary. And so the polls are maybe a little deceptive on this one as we get into the, into 2020 uh, because it's going to be who can you motivate and get out at the end of June? A lot of folks will be out of school, on to uh, family reunions and family vacations and camps and all the other things that uh, that go on in the summer. And so it is going to be, do you have the strategy, the structure, and the core disciplines required to get people out? We saw this in the Salt Lake City mayor's race. It really boiled down in the end to who organized, who got out the vote. That's the real test. And so we'll have a lot of interesting policy discussions as it relates to the Utah's governor's race in the days and weeks ahead. I think the vision is going to be, are we the crossroads of the West or are we the crossroads of the world? And what's the vision to make that a reality? Because the people of Utah want to be part of that kind of story. Uh, story drives so much of our behavior, and we're going to talk about that next. So we'll watch from all of these gubernatorial candidates who can paint a story and a picture of Utah as the crossroads to the world and still maintain our values, the things that make Utah unique and powerful and a great way to work, live, raise a family, uh, and enjoy the beauties of nature. All right, we're going to step aside one last time. Stay with us. When we come back, we will get into this power of story, what that means, how we deploy that in our lives. So stay with us on KSL News Radio. You're listening to Inside Sources. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Inside Sources. Great to be with you today. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Want to round out our show today talking about the power of story. Uh, story is a, an interesting thing. We we see it as it relates to the impeachment proceedings, the stories that are being told there. We see it in our presidential politics, those who are trying to create a story that uh, arouses and excites the American people. We see story right here in the state of Utah, as we've discussed with the governor's race. Uh, that's really going to be a story race. Is it is it crossroads of the West or crossroads to the world? And where do we go next? How do we do that? And story is, is really a powerful thing. It drives most of our behavior, so much of what we do day to day, the, the cars we drive, the brand name clothes that we wear, uh, the groups and associations and clubs that we're part of. 
are, are all connected to this sense of story. Everyone wants to be connected to a winning story. Uh, and it's actually one of the things that I worry most about in our country today is we have so many people who are losing their connection to story, to the American story, to what it means to be an American and what it means in our, our local communities and in our homes. We see so many young people feeling disconnected uh, and not part of a story, not part of a family, not part of a neighborhood or a community or a football team or a dance club or whatever it may be. And so going back to this this idea of story, let, let me give you just a, a couple of really interesting uh, examples. Uh, back in the late 1960s, Carl Frost was uh, studying a tribe in Nigeria, and electricity had just been brought to the village, and, and each of the families in the tribe were given a single light bulb in their uh, very primitive huts. And Frost at first saw this as a sign of great progress. You know, here we're bringing electricity and light uh, to these uh these people in this remote place in Nigeria. And the trouble was that at night, the families would go and sit in their huts and just stare in awe of this new technology. Again, this is 1960s. The light bulb watching began to replace what they normally did at nighttime, which was gather around the fire and the tribal storytellers, the shaman, uh, would pass along the history and the story of the tribe. Uh, what it was that made them great and unique uh, as a society, as a community. And the, the interesting impact of that was the tribe began to lose their history. They lost their connection. They lost their commitments to one another in light of a, a few light bulbs. And I think we're, we're seeing that today as well as so many of us are looking at the light bulb uh, on our phones as we're scrolling endlessly, mindlessly through social media we're often missing out those uh, missing those opportunities to connect to our story. There was a great uh, great article in the Wall Street Journal this week by uh, Sue Schellenberger talking about the importance, the secret benefits of retelling family stories. And uh, she went through and, and talked some really interesting history in terms of story and and what it means. But there's also been some really uh, fascinating research around that and just the the impact of that. Uh, so let me share just a, a couple of insights from, again, this article in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and they were talking about intergenerational stories. Uh, she said, intergenerational stories anchor youngsters as part of a larger group, helping them develop a sense of identity. 2008, uh, researchers at Emory quizzed uh, youngsters ages 10 to 14 uh, on family history questions and connection, not just to history in terms of, you know, who were your grandparents and great, great, great grandparents, but more importantly, what are the stories connected with those? And the thing that I found really interesting was that those who had a connection to story were less stressed, had less anxiety had less depression and discouragement in terms of their ability to to move forward and, and uh, take control of their lives. Uh, and so to me, that's just really interesting that this connection to story actually removes a lot of the uncertainty in our lives and creates confidence uh, to face the future and the, the challenges that are, are yet ahead. Uh, so really interesting. Again, that's on uh, the Wall Street Journal. If you want a great read for the day, it's called The Secret Benefits of Retelling Family Stories. And those things are are so important. Uh, One of the other really fascinating things as as part of this research uh, was that it wasn't just about telling your story on Instagram (laughs) 
or Facebook or some social media page. Uh, it was telling the stories in person. When the stories were told in person, the the young people internalized them more and they identified themselves as part of the story. Uh, I've been teaching businesses for decades now that that's the real test to any culture in an organization is that moment when employees begin to feel like they are part of the story or when your customers or clients start to feel like they are an integral part of a winning story, then everything changes. Everything changes. Uh, It's why family history, genealogy is one of the biggest uses of the Internet. Uh, It outpaces a lot of other things that uh, you wouldn't think. Uh, But people do have that natural desire. They're naturally drawn to story. Uh, It was one of the other interesting uh, parts of my conversation with presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin that she actually boiled down uh, in in four great presidents, Lincoln, Roosevelt, Roosevelt, and Johnson, that while they were vastly different individuals, each of them had a unique ability to connect people through story. And even the way they told stories was vastly different. Uh, the way Lincoln would do it versus Lyndon Johnson. But they all had this ability, this uncanny ability, to connect people through story. So story's a a really interesting thing. And as I I mentioned, we're going to see that really play out in a host of different ways uh, moving into this uh, presidential election season uh, and this uh, governor's race and a host of other races that we'll be following uh, here on KSL News Radio in the the weeks and months ahead. Uh, But it really will be that test. And the thing I would challenge everyone to do today, what are you going to do about it today? Uh, Tell someone a story today. Share a a story from your family's history, from your personal history, from your work experience, from your growing up years. Uh, There's nothing more powerful than an experience uh, told well. And never underestimate the the power of a story. As I, I said before, everyone... Everyone wants to be part of a winning story. Everyone wants to be part of a winning story. And regardless of what position you're in, whether you're leading your family, whether you're involved in your neighborhood and community, whether you're running a business or a manager of a team uh, or running for public office, uh, it's all about our ability to tell the story, to talk about the principles that drive the story, and then to invite people to become part of the story. That's how culture is created. And that's one of the things that I, again, worry that as Americans we're disconnecting from. And not just on the national level. Uh, I worry that we have so many young people who don't feel connected to any story at all, whether that's a school, whether that's a family or a a neighborhood. And we we have to get people back to that. All right, and that's going to wrap it up for us uh, today. Thanks for joining us on Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Always great to be with you. Uh, follow us uh, online and make sure you listen to the podcast on uh, the KSL News Radio app. All right, we will catch you again tomorrow. Don't go anywhere. And as you go out into the world today, as always, remember see something that inspires, say something that uplifts, and do something that makes a difference. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. 
Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.